This is True Builders. I'm Josh Withers, co-founder and managing director of the True Platform, a suite of talent-related software and services. I'll be talking to founders, executives, and investors about building companies, the ups and downs, and lessons learned. Our goal here is to share these insights with the other builders out there. Let's go. Hi, Mael. It's great to see you again. The world's uh, experienced a lot of change since we last spoke. Yes, it is. Good to see you. <laughs> yeah, I was looking forward to having this conversation with you. And I, I wanted to kind of share with the audience, I'll share some of your background. And so they understand, you know, why I was looking forward to this chat, you know, in your current role, serving as CEO of Techstars, one of the largest early stage investors with, you know, global reach and operations serving more than I think over 3000 companies really at this point. But you've also been a, a senior executive at, at numerous tech companies around the world, including the Priceline Group and Compass, which is, you know, more modern real estate business. And you also wrote a, a super fascinating book, Trampled by Unicorns and Big Tech's Empathy Problem and How to Fix It. And, you know, there's just a lot I think we could talk about. And so, you know, one of the things I was thinking we could start with is really, you know, some of your views that inspired the book. Um, as I, I think everyone is in this market and just given all the, the things going on, everyone's kind of rethinking about how to build companies and what is culture and how do you build it? And probably for a lot of the reasons we're all too familiar with at this point, you know, I'm curious, you know, since you wrote that book, one of the things you mentioned was the coverage of tech being imbalanced and kind of overdoing some of the praise or being super negative. What's changed in your mind, if anything, around sort of coverage of, of the tech industry at this point? Some of my peers may disagree, but I do think that in general, tech coverage has become more balanced. Journalists have become more educated about different tech companies, different technologies, how the market functions, how the ecosystem operates. And so as a result of that, I generally think that the reporting on tech companies has actually gotten better. And again, I want to emphasize that not everybody in the industry agrees with me. And there has yeah. been some pretty vocal, vocal leaders in tech arguing that media are fundamentally unfair to them. So I may be the exception on that. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. And and yeah, it probably depends on sort of where you're going for your coverage. But one of the topics that that you really touched on, I mean, it's in the title of your book, is this concept of the unicorn versus the dragon analogy. And you know, I joked with the previous guest that unicorn has kind of become a dirty word. And usually it's sort of like overvalued, huge burns. You know, it's hard to sort of grow into some of those, the value that they once had. And there's other issues associated with it too, potentially. But, you know, I'm curious, like, how has that evolved for, for you? And, you know, can you share a little bit more on your sort of analogy of the, the unicorn versus the dragon? To me, the frustration I've always had with the term unicorns was that it, assessed a company only one only on one dimension whether or not they had reached the amazing mythical 1 billion dollar yeah. valuation which there was a time and I'm going to date myself there was a time when that was indeed an extremely hard valuation to achieve and then it became a little easier and then it became a milestone and then it became a goal in itself and so that to me is when it started devaluating the terms unicorn as such because it became just a, a goal of like, I want to be a billion dollar plus valued companies without having any conversation around 
what type of company, how healthy it is going to be, what is the impact it's going to have, how sustainable financially it is going to be in the future. And because of that, I started talking about dragons rather than unicorns, because for me, when I was talking to founders, to even before Techstars, I was talking to, to startup founders about what it is that they were building or what I was trying to build with some of the companies I was running. I was talking to them about like, you want to be resilient. You want to be strong. You want to be adaptable. You want to be able to fight. You want to be like, there's so many things. And if you do all of that, then with a little bit of luck, you may become a billion dollar plus company, but that is the byproduct rather than the goal in itself. And so that's how I started thinking about dragons versus unicorn. And I think it's just the, the word unicorn has been used and abused. It's still, I mean, unicorns are beautiful animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so when you are kind of thinking about, I mean, you touched on some of this, when you're thinking about running the Techstars business or Maybe you're sort of speaking to companies that are building within your ecosystem. What are the sort of priorities that you sort of think are ideal or, or what are the areas of focus? And maybe it's just the ones you just touched on, but how do you sort of walk people through that? For the founder themselves? Yeah, sure. For founders or kind of CEOs kind of finding themselves in a position where they have to sort of think a little differently than they did two years ago. So we have three and a half thousand companies in our portfolio. Mm -hmm. I think we've, uh, last month we have been officially crown the largest pre-seed investor in the world by Crunchbase. When we talk to our founders, we talk to them a lot about how to build a financially sustainable business. Mm -hmm. Meaning, how do you create strong top-line traction? How do you create repeat purchase? How do you create subscription model if you're in that type mm -hmm. of business? Basically, how do you create a natural pool towards bigger top line rather than having to buy your top line over and over again. So we mm -hmm. start with that. Like, is there a real market? Is there real customers? And if there is, what do you do to make them see your product and buy it repeatedly? Then we talked a lot. I mean, it's really going down the PL. Is that then we talked right. to them about OPEX and how do you manage OPEX? And, and this idea that for a very long time in the, tech, in the tech industry, it didn't really matter how much you were spending as long as you were growing. I remember distinctively one of my own investor telling me, you know, as long as you grow at more than 50% your revenue, so 50, five, zero, then no one is really going to care about how much you spend to get there because it will show that there is traction and then once you reach a certain size, then it will be a lot easier for you to, to reduce your cost per unit somehow. I think we're in a very, thanks God, we are in a very, very different situation right now where it's actually not a dirty word anymore to talk about OPEX management and how do you create viable unit economics? How do you do proper capital allocation in terms of how many employees should you have? How much should you spend on automation to reduce the number of employees that you need to have in the future? How do you think about your marketing budget? Like what is sustainable and what is not? So there's a big bucket around that that is very important. And then we talk to them a lot also about fundraising and shareholders management because no matter how good they are on their top line management and aha, fantastic they become on managing their OPEX, 
most early stage startup, especially the one who want to be very innovative, require a certain scale to operate, which means that until mm. they get to that scale, they're going to need external funding, which means that even if you're not chasing fundraising after fundraising after fundraising, you still need to, to think about how to fundraise in the best possible way, how to structure your cap table in the best possible way, how do you get the best possible shareholders. And so there's a lot of conversations about that, especially in an environment where not every VCs are created equal. And mm -hmm. some of them provide tremendous values to their portfolio companies and some do not or even destroy yeah. value by just being present. Right. I think that's fair. And, and there's more and more stories coming out about that around sort of, and I think it's being talked about more publicly around the support or lack of support that founders and entrepreneurs have gotten over the last few years and certainly through the last you know, six to 12 months with you know, banking crises and other things going on. Are there ways that you recommend vetting a, you know, working with a venture firm? Yes, I would do the exact same vetting process that you use to recruit an executive. Mm -hmm. You spend time with them. You yeah. validate their experience. You ask them to talk about their experience managing a business. So same thing with a venture capitalist. Yeah. Hopefully uh, you do a lot of reference check. I would always recommend to, to our portfolio companies to look at two, three investments that this venture capitalist has done before. And it doesn't even have to be a big investment. It could be when they were an angel investor. Like It really doesn't mm -hmm. matter whether or not they have an extensive track record in the very firm that they are in, because I believe there's a lot of emerging managers who bring real value to the table. And once I have identified these two, three investment, I would pick up the phone and I would call the founders, the CEO. I'd be like, hey, how has it been? How has mm -hmm. it been working with that investor? Do they actually bring value? Do they do what they said they would do during the due diligence when they were trying to charm you into getting married? Like, <laughs> does all of that is true or it is not? And if it's not, there may be reasons and or that may be what what is more like a passive investor and basically someone who came in, give you a check and is not going to be very present, which, by the way, in some cases could also be perfectly valuable and acceptable. I think you, you should always try to get investors who can bring you more than a check, but an investor that can bring you a check and nothing else may also be interesting. And I would just try as much as possible to avoid the ones who, as I say, destroy value because they are very disturbing at the board level. They are constantly requiring attention. They are pushing decisions which do not make a lot of sense for the business that are very selfishly focused on the return of the venture capitalist. And so there's really three categories and it's not like you only have to go after the the venture capitalists, which like bring a ton of value on, on top of their check. But I think you should definitely try to avoid the destructors of value. And as I said, there's unfortunately quite a few. Yeah, look, you made several great points. And I think, you know, one of the things that we saw during this sort of go-go years when everyone was sort of competing over talent and investors were competing over investments and founders had a lot of options was just a lack of diligence, right? And so on the recruiting side, from my vantage point, it was lack of back channels and, and referencing and being thorough. And, and to your point, 
sometimes what they bring to the table is different than someone else. And that could be okay, depending on what you need. That's the same true when you're hiring, when you're hiring a candidate, right? Like sometimes I've, I've heard where, Hey, this person will change your culture because they're so, they have a dynamic personality. And, and if you want change in your culture, like that's what you're getting. Right. And and in some cases that's what you want. In other cases you don't. Right. And I think the same is true to your point, you know, how hands-on are they going to be, or is it just, you know, money and maybe that's okay. Right. But I think that diligence piece is is super important and the the cultural elements of that. And kind of on that note, I I mean, I've heard you speak a little bit about there being a culture bubble in tech, and maybe that's changed a bit. But I'm I'm curious, what's your sort of view on the the cultural bubble of tech at this point? Tech has always been very nimble when it comes to reinventing itself. Yes. And I think we are in that new phase or we are in an other phase of reinvention. And it's related to what happened with, or what is happening with valuation. It is related to what has happened in the, in, in the banking area with SVB and now First Republic. It is also related to technology innovations like artificial intelligence, Blockchain, even though blockchain is is not as fashionable these days, nanotechnology, et cetera, et cetera. There's a few underlying technological trends right now which are pushing the culture in a different direction. And then last but not least, I think we started with that, which is there is a different reporting currently on tech, whether it's the media or politicians. Like there is a different way of talking about tech and, and there was a time where tech could do no wrong. Tech companies could mm-hmm. do no wrong. They were on a path to change the world. And the assumption was when we meant change the world, it was obviously for the better, which in itself is a very interesting leap in the way it's thinking about the impact of technology. I think we're, we moved away from that quite dramatically. And we're now trying to figure out, and I, when I say we, it's a collective we. It's not just mm-hmm. the, the tech luminaries or the, the tech employees. It's, it's also like, the, the, again, the politicians, the, the government organization, the citizens that are impacted by all of that. I think we're all trying to figure out it's definitely not all good. It is also definitely not all evil. And so, like, how do you strike a balance? And I think the conversation we're currently having around our artificial intelligence and whether or not it should be regulated and whether or not it should be, we should push the post button right now on, on any additional AI search, all of that contributes to, in a way, a more moderate, I don't know if moderate is the right word, mm-hmm. a more balanced. I don't think moderate is a word that applies to yeah, right. 21st <laughs> Maybe more. Ba- I like balanced works. Yeah, yeah. Yes, There's, more both sides are talking view. about this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A more balanced view of the pros and cons of of tag, the advantages and and the strengths and weaknesses. And so, I think in in a way, it's a good thing. But that cultural transformation is extremely painful, obviously. Yep. And sort of on a related note, we've talked at a sort of higher level about the tech industry in general and sort of how it's covered, how it's viewed, what companies are paying attention to now and sort of the the unicorn versus dragon debate or topic. I don't think it's up for debate anymore. But you've also spoken on like CEO traits specifically, and maybe that goes to sort of 
the leadership in general, and in some cases, or maybe in a lot of cases, the wrong traits have been encouraged in our industry. And I'm curious, you know, if you want to expand on that point or share what you believe the key traits are that are both, you know, lead to success, but also aligned with, you know, employees and customers and the broader community that they impact. I would start by saying that there is no such a thing as the perfect CEO in abstract. There's mm-hmm. the perfect CEO for the for a specific company at a specific time. And it's not abnormal for a company to need a different type of CEO at a different time and in a different mm-hmm. environment. And it doesn't say anything about the company or the CEO. It's just like there's an evolution and, and like you have wartime and peacetime CEO. Yep. One is not better than the other. It's just they are more adapted to one specific set of circumstances versus the others. And so I don't know if I can give you like a checklist of like, here are the five things. If your CEO <laughs> has all these five things, congratulations, you hit the jackpot. I think it's, it to me, it starts with, what exactly is it that you're trying to achieve with your company that you want that CEO, that person to help you achieve? Are you trying to do a turnaround? Are you trying to scale the company? Are you trying to stabilize the company? Are you trying to milk the company? Like, mm-hmm. There's so many different things that you may want to do. And I say it's an abstract to whoever is thinking about what kind of CEO it should be. What do you expect that person to do? And then you start looking at their profile and their experience and their general nature and start making matches. And I, I mean, I'm not going to give any name, but I've, I've, I know some leaders, which I truly consider to be amazing leaders who have done pretty poor jobs at companies, sometimes very publicly. And I don't think it says anything about them or about the company. I just think it it talks about the fact that that was a bad matchmaking. Mm. And that's really what should matter more. Yep. No, that makes sense. And to sort of take it a step further in terms of maybe the the culture and how you sort of lead a business, you've talked about building sort of in an empathetic way and and building decision-making processes that and sort of re-examining business models around this concept. How has that evolved for you? Can you share more on sort of tactics to think in that way as as a leader? I would start by challenging every leader who asks me that questions around their definition of empathy. Mm. Because for a lot of them, empathy equal weakness. Empathy Mm. equal softness. Empathy equal, are you never going to be able to make tough decisions? And I think there is a confusion between empathy and sympathy or empathy and pity. I think there is also a confusion about what it is for a company to be empathetic versus a human being to be empathetic. And so I start by having this conversation with anyone who asks me, the question you've just asked me around, how do you define empathy? And and then, and, and my book was, was talking about that. It's, for me, empathy is actually an unbelievably powerful tool because what it means is that it's, it allows you to see around the corner, to mm-hmm. think about the impact that your decisions or your words 
are going to have on the people around you, not just your employees or not just your customers, but like your entire stakeholder group. And it does not mean that you are not going to make the tough decisions. I was writing in the book about the fact that you can be an empathetic leader and exit people for misbehavior or poor performance. Like this totally can coexist. I think the difference is the empathetic leader is going to think about the consequences a lot more, may still decide to go forward with it in a pretty aggressive way, but would have done the work of like, what does that mean? How do I manage that? Am I okay to live with the consequences? Is there a way for me to manage the consequences better? And so what I tell our portfolio company about empathy is that this is not a nice to have, it's a must have because as a leader, you should want to have a full understanding of how your decisions and your words impact the people around you. And again, in a broad sense. After that, if you start with, with like making sure that this is very clear in your head as a leader, mm-hmm. then a lot of things starts falling into place pretty naturally. The type of people that you recruit in your executive team, the way you communicate your decision, because then it becomes a lot easier to explain why you're doing that and, and potentially have debates with people who disagree with you because you, you take that more into account into your own reasoning. And so it just makes you objectively a better leader without making you a weak one. I'm still, when I published the book, there were a lot of people telling me in tech, oh, if companies develop too much empathy, they're never going to be able to make a profit. Interesting. And my response to that was, one, I would love for you to show me a company that has demonstrated too much empathy because right now, (laughs) I think we're so far away from it that I think we can take the risk. And then second, Again, if you think about empathy as the ability to understand the impact that your decisions and your words have on others, how is that a weakness? And why why is that contradicting your your search for better return and better profit? And in my view, it it, it actually helps it rather than than limits it. I love this, and I think you know it's interesting. Empathy is one framing of another concept that I think is is not foreign to the tech landscape in terms of sort of thinking about secondary effects of, of things, right? And so it's sort of that, but at sort of a emotional or, you know, people level, right? Like how are these actions or these words, these communications, these decisions, how does that get internalized by the people around you to your point? And that makes sense to me. You know, we've seen this a lot lately with all the layoffs and things because, the emails or the communications about these are made public on Twitter or in different news sites and et cetera. And so, and then you get to see all the reactions to these. Did they do a good job? Did they not? Like, why did they do a good job? Why did they not? And so that's a very public example of what you're talking about in terms of how things are perceived and in in terms of how you communicate them and the decisions being made. Because some of them, some of these companies are doing the exact same things as, as the other ones, but they're lauded for how they did it. And even though the outcome is the same, you know, it's interesting. And so I think it creates this culture of, hey, I still want to be here. I still want to be part of this mission. I sort of get that this was a tough decision, but we all move forward together versus, oh, this has fractured us more deeply, right? So, yeah. I mean, look, to be fair, it is doing layoff is never easy. Doing layoff at scale is incredibly complicated. 
because you right. can't you can't do it in the best way possible, which is one-on-one -on -one conversation where you take the time to explain, discuss, listen before the news becomes public. And so not to justify some of the frankly unacceptable ways that some of these layoffs have been managed, but I think a lot of people that I hear criticizing the way these layoffs have been done don't necessarily understand how difficult it is operationally to sure. do that. But yes, there is room for improvement. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, always. And and I think it's interesting. It sounds like this is part of your decision-making process. And I'm curious when you're sort of with your sort of leadership team, whether it's you know currently at Techstars or in the past, when you're going through sort of, it doesn't have to be a tough decision, but we're going through the decision process how much is sort of layering in, okay, how is this sort of going to be viewed or sort of taken on by whoever's impacted versus just knowing it's the right decision and we're going to do it, if that makes sense? I think you need to combine the two. I mean, first of all, it, it is a lot easier to implement a decision when you're convinced that this is the right decision because you've done your homework, you've done your mm -hmm. analysis, you've debated the pros and cons, and you were like, mm -hmm. okay. Whether I like that decision or not, this is the right decision for the business. Yeah. And it was not a decision based on emotion. It was a decision based on this is what the business needs. Mm -hmm. I think once you, and, and you should hopefully, as a leader, you should always aim for that. Like the conviction that the mm -hmm. decision that you have made is the best possible decision given the facts that you have in the environment in which you operate. And, and you will mm -hmm. most of the time have to operate in an environment which is highly highly moving and with facts that are not completely exhaustive. So you need right. to get to that level of conviction. But once you've done that, the challenge I think is to go from that to execution of the decision. And that's when empathy actually really matters because you can make the same decision while thinking about the impact it's gonna have with, with everyone and how can you mm -hmm. mitigate it if you decide to do so, because you may not want to, you may also decide that this is the way we're going to do it. And I, I, f I feel like, thankfully, there's more and more leaders who, when they make the decision, think about the different stakeholder in a decently empathetic way and come to decisions that take into account more than one stakeholder, more than just a shareholder mm -hmm. or more than just a, the employees or whatever the, the one the one thing that they think about, the one group that they think about the most. So I think we've done a lot of progress from that. And that, by the way, makes the work of the CEO richer, more interesting, but also way more complicated because suddenly you have to think about all these components and you right. expect it to think about all these components when you make your decision. I think where we still have some, where there is still some work to do is, is around the implementation in a way of any of this decision, by the way, good or bad, around like, how do you do that in an empathetic way? Again, no matter whether the decision is an easy or, or a difficult one. I, I, we've, we've been talking a lot about like the not so positive things around layoff, but like even in a positive way, like a lot of leaders make decisions, get wins, and then it becomes incredibly hard to celebrate because mm -hmm. they're already moving on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. part of the empathetic mindset is like, how is that win impacting our stakeholders? Again, employees, customers, shareholders, partners. 
And how can we include them into the celebration? How can we make them feel part of the win? And like we want as a team, not just that person or that team or that company. And so empathy is also useful in as a tool to help teams come together. Yeah, no, I love all these points. And I sort of think of a, a few examples from our sort of own world here at True as we've gone from, you know, there was five of us originally to 800 something now. And so there's all these different stakeholders and, and people got to keep in the loop on things. And you go through these sort of, I think the Andreessen guys termed it the idea maze. You go through this idea maze of all the sort of ins and outs and different inputs and things. And you sort of come to a decision. Well, not everyone was along for that journey, right? And so you have to sort of share some of that, I think, in terms of communicating how you got to a decision, but you also have to sort of maybe loop in certain key stakeholders ahead of time and then help distribute it through the team. And so there's just, you know, there's just a lot to do there and to be thinking about and sort of getting everyone on the same page. And then I love your idea of kind of, you know, thinking about the wins more too. I think we're guilty of that as well. I know like when I was sort of running searches myself, it's like, okay, cool. We closed that search. Here's seven others we got to go work on. Like, let's go. Right. And, you know, you don't necessarily take the time to sort of, you know, celebrate that win, you know, sales teams will ring a gong or whatever, but then it's like back to the next thing. And, but I think you're, you're right in that it just helps them feel a part of the broader mission and hopefully just encourages or gets people to kind of continue to move in that direction together. Right. So it's interesting. One question I had for you, because it seems like you think about the culture of what you're building a lot, which I think is interesting and and I think helpful, especially when times aren't as rosy as they have been in the past. One question I've been asking people, and I'm just curious about, you know, we have this sort of quote unquote COVID generation entering the workforce now and starting companies now. And I've just seen and, and felt like they're used to operating differently, more remote, more like this in this kind of, you know, Zoom setting, but also Maybe they care about things a little differently in terms of, you know, how they sort of think about work-life balance or whatever. What are you seeing in terms of cultural changes at at sort of that level of things? A few things. I think we have a new generation that is probably even more focused on impact, sustainability, hmm. long-term thinking than ever before, because when you spend two, three years in lockdown in your apartment, mm-hmm. uh, in your basement, wherever that is, you have a lot of time on your hand to think about, is that the world I want to grow up as an adult? Is that the world that I want to see when I finally get out of these apartments? What I see with the young entrepreneurs who we invest in is a lot more of them really focus on I want to make money, but also I want to have an impact. Mm-hmm. And, and that impact has to be bigger than my own life. And that can take very different formats. You know, it's not, not everybody is going and fighting climate change, but it's interesting to see how much the word impact and legacy and global come into the conversation with with a lot of this younger entrepreneur. Not to say that the older entrepreneur don't think about it, but there is mm-hmm. there seem to be something very visceral about their experience and how they 
took lessons from that and apply it to what they're working on right now and how they believe it's going to impact the world. So I think that is definitely very visible. And then the second thing that you mentioned is this whole question around remote versus in-person, centralized versus decentralized team. And here, I think the the image is a little more blurry. I think there is definitely a large number of them who are fully, fully, fully comfortable in a completely remote environment. There's also a lot of them who are so hungry Mm -hmm. for in-person human connections and for being back together and being by the coffee machine to talk about how your weekend was. And frankly, sometimes hungry to to escape home a little bit and, and mm-hmm. have the opportunity to have a different bubble to evolve in. And so I've heard and read everything in the opposite in terms of now it's all remote or everyone should be going yeah. back to the office five days a week. And, and the reality is that it depends. It depends on the business. It depends on the person. It depends on the job that that person is having in that specific business. And so it's a much more fluid environment than it was before COVID. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And what we saw was sort of a, a monoculture to some degree in the way to do that. The sort of hybrid or remote organizations were yeah. sort of an outlier, right? It was, I don't know. 5% of the clients we worked with, if that, right? Now, the, obviously, that's a much bigger percentage, although it seems to be snapping back towards at least kind of hybrid where they want people in office at least occasionally. But I think you're right in that it's going to, where it's going to net out is is based on the company, their mission, their product, how it gets built, how it gets serviced, you know, whatever. But what's interesting is is I do think that the world that might, like I have two daughters, I think about this a lot, like one's 13, one's nine. The world that they grow up in, they're going to have these options. Do they want fully remote? Do they want something hybrid? Do they want to go work in person? It'll be based on their personality and interests and skills and all that. And but at least they'll have options more than maybe people had in the Next. past, which is interesting, right? So, yeah. but one of the things that you touched on that I thought was super interesting, and I think it it kind of dovetails perhaps to the report that TechStars just put out. I was reading through that the other day. In that report, it talks about health tech and sustainability as being some of the most innovative fields that are sort of coming. And, you know, I think they're super interesting areas. There are huge areas to tackle, frankly, in terms of complexity, but certainly potential impact. You know, we have growing practices in, in those areas, healthcare, climate tech, sustainability, et cetera. It seems like I never really connected it to your statement of people want, they sat around for a few years, they want more impact. They want, they've been thinking about things beyond just like, maybe the next new like marketing tech, you know, feature, but that's super interesting. I mean, is that personally exciting to you or, or what are, what are you seeing out there that, that you're sort of encouraged by? Extremely encouraging. I think we have a new generation of entrepreneurs and, and the word generation should be taken in a broad sense. It, it's not sure. so much age related than, Hey, there is a whole new wave of people who have suddenly decided that being an entrepreneur was going to be a pass for them or a step in their life. So, and and that's mm-hmm. that's pretty phenomenal. And what we see at TechStars is a lot of really innovative idea. And I, my hypothesis is just it's a, it's just it's a conjunction of different things that's just all 
are happening at the same time as it sometimes happened, which is, again, mm -hmm. COVID and the, the change of perception of what impact means and what one wants to do with their life is pretty phenomenal technological progresses. Again, AI being the one, the one that everybody mm -hmm. talks about, but there's a bunch of other stuff happening in other industries. The fact that there is probably a higher consciousness around the world about some of the very real imminent threat that humanity is facing, the diversification of capital. And what I mean by that is, historically, you had significantly more chance, and I mean significantly, to get funded if you were in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing, and COVID helped with that, is venture capitalists who remain to a large extent the primary source of funding for a lot of these innovative companies, suddenly looking beyond Silicon Valley because Zoom has made it more possible for them mm -hmm. to explore startups in Boston or Washington or the Midwest or Miami. And then for the most adventurous of them, Europe. <laughs> and then for the really, really adventurous one, like Africa. Africa yeah. and the Middle East, there are some, and Latam, there are some amazing things happening right now with these markets leapfrogging a certain number of, in particular, B2C innovations. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a combination of all of that combined with pretty tight fundraising environment, which forces entrepreneurs to rethink really from the get-go about the viability of their business and make really early on tough choices that they would not have to make even a year and a half ago that increases their chance of really having an impact and really building a financially sustainable company. And so like you look at all of that together and I am incredibly optimistic about what is about to come from this new wave of entrepreneurship. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm a Silicon Valley born and raised native. And so part of me is always sort of fighting for, not fighting, but hoping that, you know, we can continue to help lead the way, so to speak. But that said, you know, I think I'm part of a business that has a broader global remit. And our industry now has a broader global reach and network of people. And it's, it's all for the good of the whole world. Frankly, I know that sounds very optimistic. That's kind of how I, how I am. <laughs> and so like, I look at it as it's a lot of COVID's impacts have been really bad and negative and have, have been challenging to people. However, I do think that having a broader distribution of talent in different areas and new ecosystems, either kind of furthering or getting popped up, kind of finding new areas of specialty, perhaps that they can leverage on a global basis, I think it's just good for for all of us, including the Silicon Valley, right? And so, I, I don't know. I'm I'm encouraged by it, and I think it's it's super interesting how this is all going to unfold. And you know, I'm also a I'm not an AI doomer, and so I'm excited to see what happens there too. But anyway, there's a lot going on. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I think the world the world is a better place when there are more than one center of technological innovation. absolutely. Yeah. And so yeah. I don't, and I don't know if it's. 10, 15, 20, 100, but I, I do think that generally, one thing that we say a lot at Techstars is talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. Mm -hmm. And so they are absolutely brilliant, unstoppable founders all around the world. And unfortunately, 
a lot of them do not have the opportunities to put this brilliance to work and build the next dragons that we were talking right. about before. And so I actually see that as an extremely positive trend that Silicon Valley is not anymore the center of the tech universe. Yeah, I completely agree. And obviously, Techstars is playing a huge role in terms of you know your presence around the world. And there's others as well. And just frankly, the the tech we have access to and others have access to now just just helps with leveling that playing field. And yeah, I think overall it's a net benefit. So it's super interesting. But you know, one last question for you. One thing that I, I sort of hear from people wanting to hear from folks like yourself is you're busy. You have a lot going on. You've also taken time to write books in the middle of all this. How do you kind of sustain your energy? How do you kind of keep fresh on everything that's going on in your world and, and maybe sort of just sort of staying up to date or, or taking your brain into new areas? Like, you know, what, what things are you doing outside of just the day job? I came very close to a burnout several years ago. And that, that really forced me to think very purposefully about what matters to me, what mm. drives my energy up, what drives my energy down, what is it that I need to do to be at my best, which doesn't mean that I'm always there. <laughs> and sometimes mm -hmm. my best is not that great anyway, but like, how can I most optimize what I have been given by mother nature, basically, in terms of capacity? And so I worked out something that works for me. And every time I talk about it, I, I always start with, it works for me. It doesn't mean that it's going to work for you. And it always puzzles me when there's a business leader that talks about their habits like oh i wake up every morning at 4 30 and that's how you should <laughs> right. that's what you should do because that's how you're successful it's like at 4 30 i'm in bed and i have no intention to get out <laughs> right and and i'm sure i'm sure there are people for whom 4 30 works fantastically well and there are people where if you get them out of bed before eight o'clock you're not going to get anything good from them so i would caveat everything I'm about to say with this works for me. It doesn't mean that it's working. It will work for you. And you should really spend some time thinking about what depletes your energy and what increases your energy. So I love baking. Baking is, a, is an extremely relaxing activity for me because I follow a recipe. I don't mm. have to think. I can just do it and then the result is great and everybody's happy and then I can go around my building or or right. go around my family <laughs> and distribute pieces of joy because basically right. cake is, is basically that. This is an incredibly relaxing thing for me. I exercise a lot, but I don't exercise in the morning because if I do that, I feel like in the morning, my brain is the most active. I usually yeah. wake up with my brain fully functioning and this, these are my most productive hours, like going and hitting the gym at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. in the morning is highly counterproductive for me. But hitting the gym at 4 p.m., 5 p.m. at a time where, frankly, my brain is already a little fried, very useful for me. And it helps release stress and then keep going with my day. I work on Sunday and it doesn't mean like I do a full 12 hours of work, but I will I will every Sunday like spend a few hours like doing emails and preparing presentation, working on speeches, like doing a bunch of stuff. And the reason why I do it is because during the week it allows me to manage my workload much better, which means yeah. that I can do something that I really like as well, which is going and I live in New York. 
go and see plays. I'm a big theater fan and and I love going and seeing new plays. There's a lot of them. Strongly recommend right now in New York. If I didn't work on Sunday, it would be harder for me to, to do it during the mm. week. And so I made the decision for myself that I will spend a few hours every Sunday so that once or twice a week, I can actually go out without feeling guilty or overwhelmed. But every time I send an email to an employee on the weekend, there's always at the very top of it, a big message in capital letter that say, please be reminded that I do not expect you to read nor answer my emails during the weekend. And it works for me, but it doesn't have to work for you. And so sure. again, I would just encourage everybody who listens to this to just really think through to write down two columns, what depletes my energy, what increases my energy. And you'd be surprised sometimes things that you think are actually increasing your energy do not, especially like if you're an introvert, you may realize that actually being around people is the is something that you, like really depletes your energy. And so you need to figure out things a little differently. And then once you have this list, figuring out if you can tweak some things, because that's the other thing is that you're not going to, you're not necessarily going to be able to do massive changes. What matters is, can you improve by 5% every time you go through that exercise? And if you do that for months and years and decades in a row, like you're going to be a very different person at the end of all of that. It's fantastic advice. And it's interesting. And to reiterate the point of what works for you may not work for everyone else is, is a great one. The thing that keeps getting pushed on me is this cold shower concept. I think you people who do that are crazy out there that are listening. I like to enjoy myself and I'm never going to do it. Stop asking me. It's not going to happen. That'll make me a worse person. Okay. Like anyway, so I'll put that in the, in the depleting column, but anyway. This has been great. I really appreciate it. I'm sure others will find this useful as well. And yeah, thanks again for your time. My pleasure. All right. You've been listening to True Builders, a true platform podcast. If we can be helpful to your organization as you think about building and scaling your company, please reach out. You can also visit trueplatform.com for more information. Thanks for your time and support. See you next time.